You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Romans chapter 7. Let's read through it and then we'll pray. It says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For a woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. Can I get an amen? Okay. So then, if while her husband lives and she's married another, to another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law so that she's no adulteress, though she's married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would have not known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death for sin, taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If, then, I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Let's pray. Lord, just we're so thankful for the book of Romans and just for me, studying through it, it's really like reading it for the first time again. There's so much beauty in the book, and we recognize that you inspired just this incredible writing. And, and Lord, we pray that 
you who inspired it would teach us. Lord, that before we come to the word of God, we come to the God of the word. And we ask that you would give us big brains, Lord, minds that could comprehend these incredible truths from your word. Lord, teach us today. By your spirit, speak to us. Lord, convict us of our sin and our self-righteousness and our constant flirting with the old ways and the old man and the old uh, husband of the law instead of just enjoying intimacy with you. Lord, wherever there is a legalist in the room, Lord, just drive legalism from us. Wherever there are those that just hate your good statutes and don't want to live by them, drive that heinous thought process out of us. And Lord, work in us a heart that would love to worship you through obedience. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Chapter 7 of Romans seems like just yesterday we were in chapter 1. Seems like just 20 Bible studies ago. We were in chapter 1 where we were just taught by Paul our just desperate need for the Christ. We were told our desperate need for a Savior and shown that every single one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. There's not one of us here who is innocent from sin. Uh, We all need Jesus. Uh, There in chapter three, Paul goes on to show us how we can be made innocent from our sin. We can be made righteous. We can be cleansed, but it's not by, in chapter three, verse 21, we see, it's not by our works of following after the law that we're justified, or uh, if that's a new word for you, that we're declared right or innocent in the presence of God but it's through what Jesus has done. It's by grace through faith and what he's accomplished in his perfect life and his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. And so it's in chapter three, verse 21 through chapter five that Paul lays out clearly our our justification that comes through what Jesus has done for us, our innocence that comes through the blood of Jesus and the accomplished work on the cross. And now in chapter six, or last week was new territory for us, uh, we've begun a new section of Romans that doesn't describe our justification anymore, but rather our sanctification. The word sanctify means to be set apart, set apart from the world, set apart from our old body of sin and death, and set apart to Jesus, to be conformed into the image of Christ. So chapter six begins that section and it goes through chapter eight. In chapter six, we found that we who are baptized in Christ or who are immersed in Christ are dead to sin and alive to God now. In the latter half of the chapter, we've seen that we are free from the slavery of sin, but now we're slaves to a better master. We're slaves to righteousness. We're slaves to Jesus. So sin and death no longer have dominion over us or rule over us or have mastery over us, but it's Jesus who rules over us and has dominion over us. In chapter seven, we cover new ground and see that now we're dead to something else. 
uh, and now we're free from something else. We are now dead to the law, uh, the law of Moses or the law of our conscience even no longer rules over us, but grace rules over us. As chapter six, verse 14 says, we are no longer under the law, but we're under grace. It's, it's the new Sunday school answer in case you're wondering as we go through Romans, just say grace, you'll always be right, okay? And no longer are we married to the law, but we're married to Jesus. The law is mentioned in every one of the first 14 verses of Romans chapter seven, and throughout the whole chapter, 35 times, the law is referenced. And so the question is asked, what is the place of the law in Christian discipleship now that Jesus has come and has inaugurated a new era in our life, an era of grace? Does the law have any place? You know, no human has ever succeeded in keeping the law, aside from Jesus, Therefore, it can never be the way of salvation. Instead, the law, and by law, I hope you're getting now that I'm talking about the law of Moses, or you guys might know it more as the Ten Commandments. And you might not know that after the Ten Commandments were given, 603 more commandments were given. So if you failed at the Ten Commandments, you're really in trouble because there's another 600 something that you get to follow hard after, okay? And I'll just tell you, I've blown just about every single one of the Ten Commandments, so I'm really in deep doo-doo, okay? Um, so, you know, the, the law's never justified anybody because nobody can keep the law, but rather the law reveals our sin, chapter 3, verse 20. It condemns sinners. It defines sin as sin. The law brings wrath with it because we can't fulfill it, so we're judged and then finally, the law was added so that the trespass might increase, okay? And so we've known through our study in Romans that for salvation or for justification, big words, I know, we're not under the law, but we're under grace. So too, for sanctification, we're not under the law, but we're under grace, that's what the book of Galatians is all about. He rebukes the church in Galatia who has turned from the glorious gospel of grace to working again. And he rebukes them in Galatians chapter three, verses one through six. He says, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? It's kind of a rhetorical question. And we would all be like, faith, you know. Are you so foolish then? Having begun in the spirit, you're now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Faith, you know. Just as Abraham believed God, his faith, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He rebukes the Galatians. Don't go back to feeling like it's all based by your works or any of it's based by your works. It's all about what Jesus has done. It's all about the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not about works, it's about grace. It's about him. 
And so as we get into chapter seven and we start talking about the law, the 10 commandments, the law of Moses, there's three different attitudes towards the law. First of all, there's the legalist, okay? Maybe you're in this room and you're a legalist and maybe I'm a legalist, you know, and, and the Lord would show us if we are. But legalists are under the law and are in bondage to it. They imagine that their relationship to God depends on their obedience to the law and they, know, and they believe that their justification and their sanctification also depends upon their ability to keep the law. Therefore, they are constantly, and if this is you, you are constantly depressed and bummed, discouraged and condemned because you can't keep it. And me too, constant bum nation, you know, because I can't do it. I just made that word up, write it down. Putting on urbandictionary.com. Bum nation, okay. So you got the legalists. It's all about works, all about doing really hard, trying to keep the law, and that's what makes me right before God, and that's when it's gonna get me there on that day. Then we have the antinomians, and I didn't make that word up. The antinomians, uh, or the libertines, they go the opposite direction than the legalists. They actually blame the law of God for their problems, and so they reject the law Altogether, they claim to be rid of all obligations of the law and, and, and don't believe them to be just the, the true statutes of what God desires uh, in our lives today. Okay, so the antinomians. Then we have the law-fulfilling free people. And I pray that this is, you know, where, where the Lord would bring you today. People who preserve the balance, okay? They rejoice in their freedom from the law for justification and sanctification. It's not by the law that I'm justified and it's not by the law that I'm sanctified. But I also rejoice that I have freedom to fulfill the law. That the Holy Spirit now works in me uh, to live righteous lives in worship towards the Lord. And it's his power that enables me to fulfill the righteous statutes of God. The power doesn't come from the law itself, uh, but it comes from the spirit. The law is like an x-ray machine that shows us our tumor or our broken bone or whatever. I guess that'd be an MRI that shows the tumor. I don't know. Dad was a vet, but doesn't, doesn't help me any. Uh, you know, it's the x-ray machine that shows us the break, but it doesn't fix the break. The law can never fix the break. And so... Lord, give us the fix, give us the cure, Lord, that we can worship you through obedience to you. Like Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so as we've been preaching grace and as Paul has been preaching grace in the book of Romans, the question comes up in chapter six, verse one and chapter six, verse 15, that essentially says, does it, this message of grace and freedom from the law just produce more lawlessness? I mean, don't we need boundaries and rules, you know, uh, to have any semblance of righteousness within the church? Well, we know that moral and immoral, they're all guilty before God. And the only way to be unguilty is just by faith. Faith in the, the saving work of Jesus on the cross and, and the, the new resurrection power that comes through his new uh, resurrection life as well. 
And so what is it that's going to cause Christians to pursue Jesus and not just go out and send their brains out? I mean, what is the restraining factor then if it's not the law and it's not rules and regulations? Chapter 7 just takes us deeper. Uh, It plums the depths of our new union with Christ by looking at three different things. First of all, we look at our old relationship with the law and our new relationship with Christ. Okay, That's part of plumbing the depths today. Then we look at the differences between the two. We look at the difference between our old relationship to the law and our new relationship with Christ. We're going to break chapter 7 up into three sections, and it'll probably be three different weeks. Uh, This week, we're going to look through verse 6 at this relationship that the believer now has with the law. Okay? And then next week, we'll probably, you know, you never know, I might get spunky and do the whole chapter, but... Usually doesn't happen. Uh, Verses 7 through 13, we're going to look at the relationship between sin and the law, right? And then finally, the relationship between the believer and sin in verses 14 through 25. I know you guys are looking forward to that section. So let's look at verse 1. Verses 1 through 6, the relationship between the believer and the law. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she is called adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's no adulteress though she's married another man. Verses two and three are a good reminder from Paul of the length and duration that marriages should be for life, right? You know, it's good to go back and remember Matthew chapter nine, verses three through 10, where the Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him, saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And Jesus said to them, Haven't you read that he who made them in the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So then they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So they said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? Jesus said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, didn't command but permitted, and I put that little part in there, didn't command, but permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. And the response from the disciples is, hey, if such is the case with man and his wife, it is better to just never marry, okay? Now, it'd be so tempting to just like, Dive off the diving board from Romans chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, and just do a big study on marriage and divorce, okay? Um, But that's not what Paul is getting at here. He's not saying that so that we can, you know, look at marriage necessarily. It's a good reminder today that marriage is for life, that God has a high view of marriage, that there's one reason for divorce, and that is sexual immorality. And, And, you know, even then, it'd be because of the hardness of your heart that you would be divorced, and, and, you know, where we fall short in that area or where we have fallen short, good news, 
Today's a fresh day. His mercies are new. We can repent of our sin and just ask the Lord, Lord, unite my mind with your mind on this subject that I would obey, okay? But the whole reason that Paul discusses this marriage union and that it's for life until death is so that he can paint an illustration for us of our relationship to the law, okay? That we were married in beautiful, holy matrimony to the law, okay? And he uses marriage um, as an example here, um, you know, to, to show us the legitimate bond that we had with the law, okay? Um, you know, when we were created in the very beginning in the garden, you know, God made us good and we were a reflection of his glory, okay? And we sinned and we de-godded God and we worshiped the created thing rather than the creator who's blessed forever, amen, Paul adds that in Romans 1. Uh, and in our idolatry and in our fall and in our sin, um, we bound ourselves, you know, to to try to keep the law, you know, because God is holy, God is just, God is pure, and these are the standards of his holiness and his purity. And from the very beginning, from the fall, we've never been able to keep that. We've been weak in the flesh, and we've stumbled, and we've messed up, and we can never do it, and really, not even close. We don't even come close to measuring up. But because God is holy, and those were the standards of those who should follow him, man, we were married to that law, married to that standard. And in our inability to keep it, we were condemned, and we were facing certain judgment and certain eternal death. Not only with the Mosaic law and keeping the Mosaic law, but for people that were not Jewish and had never even heard of Moses or heard of the Ten Commandments or heard of the book of Leviticus and Numbers, you know, uh, for those people, they had the inward testimony of their conscience that they were falling short of. Oh, I knew I shouldn't have said that to my neighbor. Oh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have done that to the person driving their car next to me. You know, I shouldn't. Oh, man, I, man, I've been blowing up. I've been blowing up. I've been messing up. I shouldn't have said that to my wife. You know, oh. Even their conscience, you know, bears witness to them that they've sinned and that they're not good. And so, you know, in our marriage to the law, both the external law of Moses and the inward law of conscience, we've fallen short and we have a certain punishment for not fulfilling it. But chapter seven says, hey, good news. If you're in Christ, you're dead to that law even though there was this marriage to the law, the marriage signifying a legitimate bond. It's not a misunderstanding that we would say to the law, oh, we were married? Oh my goodness, I thought we were just best friends. I didn't realize I owed you anything. No, you're not getting off that easy, okay? You had a legitimate bond to the law outside of Christ, okay? If you were to go to court against the law, you would lose every time. I think Paul also uses this marriage picture, although many have faulted him and made fun of him for an imperfect analogy, I think it does the trick, you know, he uses the marriage picture to show us that death enables the beginning of a new relationship, and also that the law itself declares that death can release you from the bond, that is the way out of the bond, it's death. 
You know, um, just recently, uh, actually two years ago this week, um, one of my aunts died and uh, I was just very close to her and just um, close to the, the family. And uh, within a year and a half, um, you know, the Lord had healed my uncle and had brought another woman into his life that loved Jesus. And they both wanted to be on mission together as, as husband and wife and be a picture of Christ in this world. And so, you know, we got the news that Uncle Stan is engaged. And, you know, the first thing for us is like, oh my goodness, it's only been a year. And, you know, man, what's going on? You know, and uh, I just remember like out of like immediately having that reaction and then immediately the Lord bringing up, you know, Romans chapter seven that, hey, you know, while Stan and Aunt Diane were married, they were just awesome picture of Jesus in the church and just, they were on mission together as a couple. And then, you know, when she died of leukemia, that, you know, they had fulfilled that, you know, co covenant. And that covenant is now done. And now biblically and beautifully, he is free to marry another that they can go off and worship Jesus and, you know, go be lights for him in this world and be a picture of Christ in the church. And it's just so cool to see in firsthand, you know, how that covenant is ended at death. Uh, and then something beautiful can be going on after that. And the same thing is here in Romans chapter seven, as we see that um, death dissolves the old relationship. Although in this case, it wasn't as beautiful and pleasant as my aunt and uncle's marriage. Now we're talking about something, uh, you know, a spouse that's a perfectionist, you know, that is a, a slave driver in a sense. And you can never please that death dissolves the relationship there and makes a new relationship possible. And if you could imagine just that, imagine if you were married some, to somebody who demanded absolute perfection from you. I know what you're thinking. I see it in some of your eyes. I already am, right? Okay, that's what you're thinking. Shame on you. Be praying for your marriage, okay? Um, how would you respond, you know, if Every, you know, note that's on the fridge as you come out, you know, like, oh, a little love letter and you open it up. You blew it again, you dirtbag, you know. Oh, oh, shoot. I'm gonna try really better, you know, to do that. You know, and then you're at work and you get a text message. Oh, it's, it's a pick message, you know, and you open it up and here's another way that you blew it, you know. Like, oh man, you know. <laughs> Valentine's Day, you know, it's just a, a bear sitting on the counter holding a mug of chocolates. And the little heart has, you know, embroidered on it. You blew it. You failed. Failure. Faility, fail, fail, failure. And how do you respond to that? You know, the first week of marriage, you're like, oh, it'll change, you know, it'll change, you know. And then, you know, after 10 years or 15 years, you're just like, oh, my gosh. I'm not checking my texts anymore, and I'm not reading the notes on the fridge. Because your response to that type of a marriage, it's either you know, depression and discouragement and condemnation, or it's rebellion. Well, I'll never make it and I'll never measure up, so I'm out of here. In fact, I'm gonna do just the opposite, just to spite you. But you know what? In that marriage, there is a legitimate bond and you can't get out of it until what? Until death. That's exactly the picture of our marriage to the law. And so how can Christ save us from this horrible marriage without either us or him breaking the law? Verse four tells us, therefore, my brethren, you have been freed from the law 
through the body of Christ, that you may marry to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that you might bear fruit to God. This new union is possible in our union to Jesus, that by faith, his story, his history becomes our history. Through faith, his perfect life becomes our perfect life. His innocent death becomes our death. And his resurrection becomes our newness of life. As Romans 6 spelled it out, probably a lot more eloquently than I did. As new, the New Living Translation of this verse says, So then, dear friends, the point is this. The law no longer holds you in its power because you died to its power when you died with Christ on the cross. We have a union with Jesus through faith to where we actually died on the cross with him. And we're dead to the law and we're dead to its power. And yet in all of this, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it perfectly. And he does just that in this new union We didn't cheat on the law. We didn't have an affair with Jesus against the law, but Jesus fulfilled it perfectly that by faith, his death becomes our death and we're we're free to a new relationship, to a new husband as the church. We're the bride of Christ. Get used to it, guys. Colossians chapter three, verse three tells us that you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Through whose death did we die? We died in Christ's death. Through Christ's death, we're united in it. As chapter six, verse four says, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we will walk in this newness of life. And so we're united, uh, um, we're, we're freed from the law through the body of Christ that you may, verse four tells us, be married to another. We're free to be married. What happens when a man works hard and diligently and goes to school and graduates and becomes an entrepreneur, you know, and he goes out and he starts all these businesses and invests wisely and buys property and, you know, has the the ship and the yacht and the plane and just everything. And and then he goes and gets married. Uh, In marriage, unless you're a creep and you sign a prenup, you know, uh, in marriage, all of these things become whose? The wife's, right? Or the husband's, who's ever, you know, worked, you know, it be, it's, it's attributed now to them as well. They get to partake of the blessings. And the same happens in our unity with Christ. All of his perfection, all of his fulfillment of not only the 10 commandments, but all of the other ones and his fulfillment of even what our conscience would tell, man, it becomes ours through our marriage, through our uniting to him by faith. This legitimate hold of the law was broken in a very legitimate way. And Christ bearing the punishment, Christ being obedient, it's imputed to us. Our debt is paid by Jesus. Now, is that so that we can just free, fro- free float through life and just kind of be lazy and you know, uh, just kind of wait for the rapture to happen or something like that? 
Or is it that we could go out and bear fruit to God? It says there, we've been united to him who was raised from the dead at the end of verse four, that you may bear fruit to God. We get to be part of this new relationship and all of its privileges and all of its benefits that are given to us by grace, not by anything that we've done. And so we look at this radical difference between the old relationship, the old marriage to the law. And if you're not in Christ today, uh, you're still married to the law, okay? So the old relationship speaks to your current relationship. And the vast difference between our new relationship and our new marriage to Jesus, for those of us who are in Christ, uh, the new relationship is one of life and not of death. You see this contrast a lot through verse six. This old relationship used to even produce sin, verse five tells us. Uh, it, it actually um, aroused sin within us, this old relationship to the law. And so this marriage to the law, the honeymoon, clear up through the 50th golden year anniversary, you know, it all was producing sin and death within us. And the, the fruit of death was born out of that relationship. But in our union with Christ, you know, it's, it's not, you know, there's no tell death do us part because we're walking in that new life that he's provided. There's also a difference because, because this new marriage, this new relationship with Christ is marked by an internal craving that we have for our God, that we have for our new husband, if you will, rather than external commands that we constantly have to be keeping. In fact, if you just jump ahead to verse six, we see that now we get to serve in the newness of life and not in the oldness of the letter. And what's Paul talking about by that, the newness of life or the oldness of the letter? The, the old covenant and the old letter, as it's referred to, was made from the um, outside in, if you will. The outside in. Here's the law, now you try to do it. But this new covenant, it's gonna come from the inside out. As we'll look at Jeremiah now, 31, 31. Here in Jeremiah 31, 31, Jesus basically shows us the hardness of a man's heart. And as we see the hardness of a man's heart, we'll finally understand the power of God's spirit. In Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, uh, just this new covenant is described for us. Jeremiah 31, 31, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Here's the new covenant. Are you ready for it? Here it is. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, hey, know the Lord for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. And here's the foundation of it all. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. What's important in this covenant here, this new covenant, the importance is a new heart. 
As you're given a new heart, you're what Jesus told Nicodemus, born again. You're born of the spirit, not of flesh. A new heart that can know the Lord. And the whole way this is done is through this forgiveness of sin. As you look at Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, it says, I'll give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. In the new covenant, the old heart of stone is taken out. And I say this all the time because I just love this picture and I've been so hard-hearted, you know. Uh, The old heart of stone taken out and a new beating heart of flesh that is soft to the things of the Lord and knows the Lord. Also, Ezekiel tells us that he will place his spirit in us, a member of the Trinity, God in us to empower us, that we can obey him. And you look at the disciples right after Jesus was resurrected and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And he blew on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Have you been born again? Are you saved? Are you regenerate? Has the Lord taken out of you this old heart of stone that everything was external in your relationship with God and you were just trying to fulfill these demands and these laws and, and you know you made up your own laws and stuff and you're just failing and falling short even if you're telling yourself you were doing pretty good? Have you had the Lord take that heart out of you and just put one in that he's already accomplished for you? And he's gonna give you the power to walk in obedience from here on out. If not, don't even wait for this Bible study to end. Just ask Jesus right now, Lord, will you give me this new heart Rory's talking about? Give me this heart of flesh. I wanna know the Lord. And you know, after the apostles, you know, had the Holy Spirit come in them, they went out as apostles throughout the world, as sent ones throughout the world. And they would always call themselves that we are ministers of this new covenant. We're ministers of this fleshly heart covenant that the Lord talked about. And the Lord has made them sufficient to do just that. All of this that we speak of, this new master, this new husband, this new relationship. It's only possible by Jesus who removes our sin and remembers our iniquities no more. You know, all of this is just pictured in Jesus and in the Passover. You guys remember in Exodus, the one of the final plagues there against Egypt was the death of the firstborn. And you'll remember that the, Egypt, or that the Israelites were told, hey, go kill a spotless lamb And go back to your house and take the blood of this lamb and mark it on the doorposts of your house. And in the night when the angel of the Lord goes over all of the houses, anyone that doesn't have the blood on the doorpost, they're gonna lose their firstborn in their home. And so the angel passed over any of the houses of Passover, you know, that that had the blood on the doorposts. But those that didn't have the blood of the lamb, uh, the firstborn was killed. And you'll remember that when John the Baptist was baptizing people, and here comes Jesus out of the woods, you know, John the Baptist says, behold, the lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that anyone who has the blood of the lamb 
put on them, placed on their account, will not perish, will not face this judgment, but have everlasting life. As we come to communion at the end of the Bible study today, as we come to communion, we take the blood, not literally, we take the cup, grape juice, you know, and we remember that Jesus' blood was the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. And as we drink it, we say, Lord, it's just like it's being poured out over my heart, Lord, that I'd be found in you. Your body, this cracker crack, you know, Lord, you are broken that the wrath of God could pass over me. This new covenant was fulfilled in Jesus. He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the covenant. And so what makes Christians not want to sin anymore? I mean, if you don't have the law and you don't have these rules and regulations to keep us in check, then what's going to make us, you know, keep us from, you know, sinning our brains out? The new phrase that I've discovered. What's going to keep us from that? Our obedience now, it's going to flow out of a love relationship with God. Our obedience is going to flow from intimacy and time spent with our the one who loved us first. Jesus says, if you love me, you're going to obey my commandments just out of love. You know, obedience to commandments, it's never going to produce love. Or serving is never going to produce love. But love is always going to produce obedience. And love is always going to produce service. And so even though we have no desire to go back and serve the old master, you know, constantly uh, or to go and be under the, the yoke of legalism, we tend to flirt with it sometimes. You know, it's possible for us to grieve the Holy Spirit and, and to flirt with the old husband and to flirt with the old life. And it just grieves the Lord. And if you're doing that, and, and this could be gross sins that we technically think of them as gross. That's gross. I can't believe you did that. Or it could be we're flirting with the old husband of the law. Oh, Jesus, I thank you for getting me into, you know, heaven. But right now I'm going to just sanctify myself by my old husband, by the law. It'll be great. You can't do that. You can't do that. And as you see that in you, repent. Get out of legalism. As 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, Paul speaks like a jealous husband here. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, he says. And indeed you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. Because the gospel is so simple. It's not about me, it's about Jesus. It's not about what I can do, it's about what he's done for me. And he's working in me now. I love him just because he loved me first. I'm just responding to him. So simple. Jesus paid it all, and Jesus is working it all out in me. And we tend to complicate things and the enemy works in us and corrupts us from the simplicity that's in Christ, telling us, no, you've, you've got to do more. If you want to appease God for what you did last Monday or Wednesday, man, you better like 
Go sign up at the Boys and Girls Club or something, buddy, because you are busted. There's no resting in what Jesus has done. Sure, go volunteer at the Boys and Girls Club, but do it because you love Jesus and you want to go you know, lead people to the Lord. Don't go back to that old master. Don't be deceived from the simplicity that's in Christ. Our remedy of grace doesn't produce sin, but it produces service and fruit to the Lord that you may bear fruit to God. Verse five says, if you go back. Now, fruit is not like tinsel on a tree. Okay, that comes from external stuff. Fruit comes from within the tree and pops out of the, the branches. It comes from the nutrients that it's getting as it abides in the source of life. Same thing happens with us as we abide in Christ. Fruit will bear from our branches. Matthew 12, 33, Jesus says, hey, either make the tree good and its fruit good or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. A tree is known by its fruit. What's the fruit from your life? Is it like what chapter six says? I think it's verse, oh shoot, 13 or something, you know, that we're ashamed of our fruit? Or is it good fruit that's a picture of the Lord? Chuck Smith said, God is not desiring to be in the factory inspecting the works, but rather he wants to be in his garden enjoying the fruit. Man, be tapped into Jesus so that you can have life flowing through you and fruit coming out of you. The New Testament speaks of a whole lot of different kinds of this fruit. People who are one to Jesus, Romans 11, 13, or 1, 13 tells us that they are fruit. Holy living is a fruit. Gifts that we bring to the Lord are fruit. The fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. Probably forgot one in there. Colossians 1.10 show that our good works are fruit to the Lord. And that our praise to God is fruit, Hebrews tells us, fruit from our lips. Do you have any of that in your life? If you jump back to verse five, you know, it says, when we were in the flesh, our sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. We used to conduct ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, Ephesians 2 says, you know, fulfilling the desires of the flesh. And we were by nature's children of wrath, just as the others. We were involved in sinful passions or motions of sin that were aroused by what? What does it say there, aroused the sin? Doesn't seem like it would, right? It doesn't seem right. It was the law. The law of God that aroused sin. How is that possible? Well, you guys have seen it in your daily life many times. We're going to get into it even more next week. But for one example, you know, how about when you're cruising over to the valley over the, you know, Tombstone Pass, you know, and you hit a corner that the sign right before it says, you know, 35, 35, everybody, 35, okay? And what is your reaction? Well, everybody knows that the road department stakes that sign at least 15 miles an hour lower than what you can take it just so they can control you, okay? But they don't know that I've got the new Acura XTM and that it has four-wheel drive suspension. It's a, it's a SUV on a, you know, sports car suspension chassis. And, you know, as you go around the corner, technically you can take it about 45 over what the sign says. 
and that's what I'm going to do, you know. We would have never thought of doing that until we saw the stinking sign. This sign provoked us to sin. Luckily for me, I have a, a beautiful little conscience sit, you know, sitting in the leather heated seat next to me, you know, and the squeeze on her hand keeps me in check. She's like the Holy Spirit, kind of, you know. <laughs> but we're going to get even more in verses. She's not like the Holy Spirit, but tries to be. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. Verses 7 through, I think it's 14, is where you really get in depth of how the law, you know, um, it provokes us to sin. Sin finds occasion or a starting point from the law. And, and this is how bad sin is, is it takes something that's beautiful and right and righteous. Psalm 19, Psalm 119 tells us this. Chapter seven, verse 22 tells us this. It's good, it's right. And we're so stinking wicked that we twist the law and we use it for evil. So sin just, uh, it was at work in our members, in our limbs, in our body parts. Uh, to bear fruit to death. And sinful passions would produce a harvest of sinful deeds out of us. Verse six, but now we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. We can serve in two different ways, the newness of the spirit, power and vitality, or in the oldness of the letter. Brought self-righteousness, routine and bondage. It says here that we can serve or minister. That's what ministry is. It's just serving the Lord. It's serving the world. It's serving our brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we understand the gospel, when we understand the, the grace of God, when we understand the sanctification, this new beautiful love that flows from intimacy with God, no longer do we serve out of bondage and hoping that people, you know, give us accolades and praise and, you know, status through our service. Because as we serve in that capacity, we just get bitter because we don't always get those things. We get angry, we get depressed. We begin to gossip about these things. We begin to have a root of bitterness spring up in us. But as we understand grace, when we understand we've been delivered from the law and, and even trying to please God with these works, and if we're not working, then we're not pleasing God. When we understand grace from this moment on, ministry can just flow from intimacy with Christ. He's all we want, he's all we need. Man, he just spurs me to serve and serve and pour myself out for you guys and, and for this town. I serve because I love. But ministry looks nothing like Jesus if it's founded on any other foundation than the love and affirmation that Jesus has already given us. And if you're not serving in that, then man, you're a bad picture of Jesus. And you can just come and rest at what he has done. That his approval would be the only thing that matters for all eternity for us. The ministry of the new covenant, of the letter of the spirit, flows from intimacy with Jesus. And so as we close, and Ken, you can come on up, worship team. I said it before, I'll say it again. If you're here today, 
and you're not in Jesus. You haven't been born again. You haven't believed. You are legitimately yoked to the bondage of the law. You are failing. You haven't kept the law. And James tells us that if anyone is you know, perfect at keeping the whole law and yet stumbles at one point, he's guilty of breaking it all. And that's every one of us. We've broken the law, fallen short of the glory of God. And because we've failed, we must bear the penalty. And, and this is for you today. If you're not in Christ, you will bear the penalty of your failure for eternity in hell. But the good news is God has brought you here to tell you that he has taken that penalty for you. And that if you would by faith respond to his grace and allow his love to cover you and to wash away your sins, to let what he's done on the cross be attributed to you, to allow his history to become your history, You'll be forgiven of your sins. Right now where you're at, in the chair, right now, even while I'm talking, you can respond to him. And you can experience this moment, him removing your heart of stone and placing in you a heart of flesh that can know him, that does know him. Placing in you his Holy Spirit and working out this new covenant in forgiving you of all your sins, all your sins can be forgiven this morning. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ this morning and you'll be saved. As we worship, rest in Jesus and what he's done. Fix your eyes on him. As we take communion, let what he's done in his life and his death and his resurrection, let it be in you. As you just eat the juice and eat the cracker, just as close as you can get in this world to a concept. Jesus says, eat my body, drink my blood. Receive in you this new covenant. If you reject Christ today, don't drink, don't eat. It's not for you. Just thinking of the concept of marriage and it being till death. And just people in this room, you've, you've had a, a warped mindset of what marriage is before the Lord. And you've maybe failed in the past or you're in the process of failing now. And you can just repent right now. Just repent, just, Lord, I, I see what you see. I, I see what you see that I, I've been making my own laws up about marriage, my own standards, but here's your beautiful precepts about it. 
I repent, Lord. Heal my marriage. Or heal my mess up. Heal my adultery, God. I turn from it to you. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.